listening to the Denver Real Estate Investing Podcast, brought to you by the Envision Advisors at Your Castle Real Estate. Hey, Denver, Chris Lopez here, and today's podcast is another podcast in our portfolio analysis series. Now, you've probably heard myself, a lot of our guests on the show have a very common goal of getting to $10,000 a month in net operating income. And this is a goal we set often as we are sitting down with our clients and talking about what their goals are, what their strategies are, because it's very hard to go out and put a plan together until we know what you want to work towards. And I'd say 80%, if not more people, that $10,000 a month is the goal that people go towards. It might be because they hear it on the podcast or it's a nice round number or it's a you know good chunk of money. But today's guest actually has a portfolio he started building up just over 10 years ago and he's pretty much achieved those numbers. Before I introduce him, I got Chelsea Scott. Chelsea, good afternoon. Hey Chris, how's it going? Really good. I'm awesome. excited to do this podcast like all of them. Uh, but yeah. this one would be really cool because we it just happened that as we were as you're going through talking with clients and starting mm -hmm. to pull some people's portfolios out to do some analyses, this one just fit the mark so well for what our clients want. And then very fortunately, uh, the client and now our guest was willing to come on and be an open book. So we have Travis Spear. Travis, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me today, Chris. It's uh, exciting to be with you and have watched uh, how you've grown this podcast and your business over the time. So appreciate you having me. Thank you. I think you're on like podcasts like 20 or 15 real early ago. on yeah. me and charles in the conference room with his laptop you know before all of this uh, fancy stuff you have going yeah. here so and and that's actually a good a great starting point to talk about your your story because for those who don't know travis travis is a, um, a very successful real estate investor he's also a lender over at pine financial doing hard money loans uh, for investors but you got started by house hacking 11 years ago? Uh, yeah, right about then. It was in 2010 we bought, uh, my wife and I, then girlfriend, uh, bought a uh, three unit in Aurora. It was a HUD property, did the uh, 203K, uh, which is the, uh, for those who aren't familiar, it's the loan where you can borrow the purchase price and the rehab money. And in today's market, you're not seeing that happen. One, because there's no HUD houses, but two, because who would accept that type of financing? It's slow to close and there's a lot of caveats. So we bought this three unit in Aurora. Uh, with the intent of living in one unit and renting the others. Um, we bought it, did about $30,000 in work. I did a lot of the work myself. Um, I grew up around construction, with, working with my father. And uh, it was exciting. We lived there for about the year that was required. And then from there, we actually moved to another property to rent because my wife was was working in Boulder at the time. Um, we wanted to get a little closer to that. And uh, from there, just started kind of doing the birth strategy before it was called the birth strategy and buying properties really as quickly as we could. Uh, the market was much different at that time, right? In, in 2010, you could buy stuff off the MLS relatively easy, but times were also different in that financing was more expensive. Uh, a lot of people weren't lending money and it was difficult to uh, get deals done from that aspect. So the pricing was there, but it was a little bit more challenging to, to borrow money. And uh, we just continued to buy properties. Do you remember what your interest rate was on the triplex? Oh gosh, you know, it was probably in the fours because it was an FHA loan, probably heavy uh, fee up front for the PMI. And then a couple years in, when uh, as the market started to recover, I did a streamline uh, refinance actually with Joe Massey and a wild deal. As long as you were making your payments on time, you could drop your rate to whatever. And, and I think we're locked in now at three, six, two, five or something like that. 
uh, and that was in 2012 or 13. So uh, the property continues to cash flow really well. Okay, so you bought the first property, the, the, the triplex house hack in 2010, lived there, fixed it up, moved out, and you really focused then on just buying rentals for the burst strategy. And then fast forwarding to today, approximately like what's your portfolio look like? So overall, uh, there's there's 15 properties now with two that we bought that we're going to use for Airbnb. And I think we'll touch a little bit more on that. But just focusing on the portfolio that got us to this this number that everybody kind of achieves of the $10,000 a month, it's 11 properties, but 13 doors. So the three unit plus another uh, 10 properties. Okay. So all single families except for the triplex? A few. So uh, the triplex, and then I have um, six or seven single families, and then I started buying townhomes out in Green Valley Ranch, uh, and I've got four out there. Okay, great. And then I know you were one of the first uh, clients slash guinea pigs that came through the portfolio (laughs) analysis when we were really getting it figured out uh, late last year, Chelsea. Um, walk us through when you start plugging in Travis's properties to port, uh, your spreadsheet, give us an overview about what you plugged in and kind of like some high level takeaways from your perspective. Yeah. So, um, clearly uh, Travis had started in kind of the unicorn time, right? So he was able to capitalize on some of those great pricings that you saw in 2010, probably until about 2015, even, um, some of the properties you were purchasing, uh, you know, were just, you were getting some, you know, some numbers like $95,000 for properties, which was incredible. But as you mentioned, um, when you looked at some of the interest rates, some were in the fives, some were in the low sixes. So a little bit different with some of the financing options at that time too. Um, So that really stood out on the initial to go through a portfolio with somebody who had started in that initial period. And then once we put all of the properties in, I started to realize that he's already cash flowing at a really significant rate. And I think it was around fifty to sixty thousand dollars of cash flow before you picked up these two recent properties in twenty twenty one. So it was a pretty it was a pretty high number. And then I also, you know, had really taken a look at his equity position and that is just really strong. So, you know, with having your fifteen doors and your thirteen properties, um, at this point, you know, you're you're looking at well over a three million dollar equity position sitting in this portfolio. And so it's a really nice you know, spread of what he's done over time. And the the greatest thing that I can tell you that's a takeaway for everybody listening today is the consistency at which you purchased. I mean, there really wasn't a gap in time over the past 11 years where you kind of slowed down. And so, you know, clearly you're being on the financing side of things sure. and understanding the lending. You know, you probably did some really neat stuff to get there, but it was that whole rolling process where you just kept the momentum going. So that was a really, it was a really big takeaway for me there. And also you've increased rents over time, which I really um, noticed, especially as we started to dig a little bit further into your newer properties. And we, we revisited the properties that we initially put in. You'd increase those properties just in a six month period between the first and the second time I'd spoken with you. We recommend people increase 3% per year on their rents and they should anticipate a 2% increase in operating expenses, which is going on right now with some right. current assessments on taxes mostly, but we, we tell people to expect that and you've really helped to push the needle there as well. And I don't know if you want to speak to that or how your tenants have taken that or how you kind of approach it, but I think, you know, that that's really a great part of the strategy that, that we encourage. Yeah. So probably the thing that I'm 
worst at in managing the portfolio is increasing rents. Uh, you know, in Denver, the rents have gone up. There was a period there where they were going up 12-ish percent per year and, uh, you know, capitalized over about three or four year period. It's like a 50% increase in rents. And that's difficult to do when you have tenants who have been there long-term. I've got uh, one tenant on a property in Aurora is the second property I bought and she's been there since, since day one. So over 10 years now. And uh, she's section eight. So it's a little easier to raise the rent on that. But I do have some properties in Montbello that are probably 400-ish dollars per month under rented. And it pains me to say that out loud, but the fact is, is when rents were going up quickly, I couldn't keep up. But then the second piece is I didn't want turnovers, right? Because a turnover, especially now as materials and everything are more expensive, is probably gonna be, for people who have been there for that long, I don't know, Twelve, fifteen thousand dollars. So at some point you have to look at okay, if I could squeeze another three hundred bucks a month, how many years to break even? Um, and so I do have some properties that are rented. Now here's the problem when you get to a, a portfolio this size and being under rented. If you've got two or three properties and you're under rented, you'll you'll make it work. But if you've got five properties that are under rented by two hundred or excuse me four hundred dollars a month, that's two thousand dollars a month, right? Over the course of a year, it's twenty four thousand dollars a year, which would probably just about cover my kids. Um, daycare costs annually, mm -hmm. um, but it doesn't cost you any more to operate those properties. And that's uh, one thing where I, I have done okay at, but I, going back, if I could have done better, I would have been much more consistent with the, even if it was a 3% bump or a $50 or a hundred dollar bump on these properties to make sure that in X number of years you're at market. If you have a property now that's rent, that the market should be say 2,200 bucks a month and you're at 1,700, it's very difficult to capture that. You can continue to increase each year, even with aggressive pushes, but it's gonna be really difficult to get to that market rent. Yeah, and and I mean, I can see that. I can see that in some of your properties as well. Um, I did notice though, in that, in that six months, you just made some minor increases. So that alone though is just, can be helpful. Just sure. so that people know that you can just ask for that, you know, that small increase. And at least in the Denver Metro, understanding the concerns of not wanting the turnover, we do have a market that is, you know, just booming with rent sure. with renters. And so people can understand that inventory issue. Some some people do. And so that can be helpful to raising the rents as no well. Doubt. But yeah. Um so those were yeah, those are some outliers. So I got I got some questions if you're since you're an open book. Sure. Travis, I'm I'm really curious because you know we spend so much time on this podcast talking about, you know, acquiring properties, building it. We won't spend much time talking about that because you know we've talked about it and now you're in a position where you've got some you have some options with your portfolio. Actually have the mouse back, Chelsea. Yeah, sure. So um, you know, looking at your current property right now, um, you have about four million dollars in total value and just about three million dollars in equity. And looking at a lot of these properties, your current cap rate, which is, you know, the current valuation, you know, or I'm sorry, the current NOI divided by the current valuation, not the purchase stuff from the last couple of years, but what hey, if you bought it today or sold today, what would the cap rate be? You have a lot of cap rates that are two, three percent. I mean, sub four, most are sub four, a couple are sub five. Now, you know, when you see those, a lot of times you have options there to, hey, should I pay off the property? Should I cash out refi or should I sell? Sure. And usually when cap rates are that low, it's usually the best use of equity to go out there and and sell 1031 and trade up, which I've learned that from Lon Welsh and sure. the way, you know, his his matching numbers, hey, if it's below 4% cap rate, probably time to sell and trade up. So what are you doing with these properties? Are you going to refinance? You're gonna pay off? Are you going to sell and trade up? Because I wanna know what you wanna do, because I wanna be in your shoe in a couple shoes in a couple of years. Sure. So yeah. 
this is difficult. If you measured my portfolio from a return on equity, it, it's terrible. There's no question, right? From a percentage standpoint. But I remember having a conversation years ago with, with Charles Roberts when I was just about to buy another rental. And I said, Hey, I don't know, Charles. I've, you know, at that point, I've got a million dollars in debt. Granted, it was all relatively low leverage on, on good real estate and cash flowing. Uh, and, you know, his comment to me was that the spreadsheet every single time is going to tell you to buy more properties, leverage them because you're going to participate from the um, appreciation. You're going to appreciate for, uh, you're going to benefit from the depreciation and of course, from the principal pay down as you own the property. But your gut is going to tell you something different, right? Because everybody has a certain level of debt that maybe they're willing to take on and uh, from a portfolio standpoint. So my goal, I remember we were on our, our honeymoon, my wife and I, and we were in Costa Rica and we were driving across the, the country and we were, I was sitting in the front and she was sitting in the back. And uh, I was just scribbling on a piece of paper, trying to decide like, you know, how do we get to a point where this money is passive and, and we can live well and not have any worries. And at that time, I think I was targeting 15 properties at, and at that time, $1,200 a month in rent. Right. And so, uh, and then if you get them to free and clear, what does that deliver? And I was good with that number, but as life's changes and costs of daycare and living and different things, uh, the goal changed. And so the goal now, which is actually outlined in, in the, um, your book that you'll launch in a few weeks is to get to a thousand dollars a day. So $30,000 a month in income. Now, I know this is a long answer to what you're asking, but I think it'll help to back into it. So my thought now is if we can get to 20 properties free and clear by the time I'm 50, which is another 13 ish years, um, then 20 properties at $2,000 a month is $40,000 at 25% expense. Uh, that's 30,000 or a thousand dollars a day. That's, that's where I'm working toward. I can't get to that number and, and can't have free and clear properties. If I'm continuing to refinance trade and move up, I can likely get to the income required. But another uh, thing that I think about with single family houses is so easy to buy. They're so easy to relatively easy to manage and they're really easy to liquidate. So I could trade up to say an apartment building. Um, but if time comes where I need to get some money out, I could maybe refinance it depending on the uh, market conditions. I could sell it depending on the market conditions. Who buys an apartment building? An investor. What do investors want? Deals, right? So with a single family house, at any point in time, I could peel one of these off and decide I'm going to sell this and buy two more. I could sell this and pay for college. I could sell this and blow the money. Um, you can kind of do whatever you want. Um, so that's what has kept me from leveraging up to continue to buy properties. Now, we've been very fortunate to have good incomes and, and cash flow from these properties where we can continue to buy properties without having to do that. But I can't get to my goal of paying off the properties if I'm continuing to finance them. Yeah. And so one thing I want to highlight there is to your point, Chris, I mean, people focus on cap rate a lot, right? It's really, it's just, it's one of the number one indicators that people mm -hmm. use to make a decision on a property. Sure. And what I really like here is that you're helping to explain that it's not all about the cap rate because your goals are different. You know, you have this cash flow and NOI goal and to get there, you don't see it as I need to sell or trade or leverage a property in order to move that cap rate. You're more concerned about that thousand dollars a day. So that can also apply when somebody's buying a property. So if they're buying a property and the cap rate looks low, but they see it as something that, that they can then use for the future, or it has another reason why that particular area may be appreciating at a really rapid rate. And it might be right in the curve where it's just on an upward trajectory. And so they're capturing it at some point on that upward slope. And when they get it, then they're like, well, I know it's going to appreciate another hundred thousand. So the cap rate's not great right now, but I'm going to going to count on the fact that more people want to rent here and it's going to continue to appreciate. And so those can be other reasons to look at a property, especially in a market like this when cap rates are so compressed. Yeah, and I love that you guys use cap rates because 
five or six years ago, we weren't looking at cap rates when looking at value in uh, single family rentals. We were looking for what is the gross cash flow or what's the net cash flow and, and what is it going to look like over time? It's good to use the cap rates because it gives a really easy way to measure across all asset types how the, the asset uh, measures, right? So if you know you're out there getting a seven cap on true numbers, you know you're getting a good deal. Where we used to just look at it as, gosh, you're doing the burst strategy. You have as little down as possible. I'm going to cash flow 500 bucks a month. I might get all the money I have into this back in 12 or 18 months. Um, so the deals were a little different. We didn't even look at cap rates. It was all cash flow uh, driven. Now, of course, today, as more real estate and, and had you guys teach to look at cap rates, it does help to give a, a better setting across the whole portfolio. But just as you alluded to, it doesn't necessarily take into account the cash flow. I mean, it does that from return on investment. But it, one, one thing I like to say is like, you, uh, especially with equity, like you can't buy beer with equity, you can buy it with cash flow. And so uh, it's kind of similar with cap rate, right? Like you, you, yeah. you, although it does drive the income, cash flow at the end of the day is what's most important. Yeah. It, it's, go ahead. So I, I, I got a follow up question on this topic because you know my mind it's always looked like, for example, I'm just going to first property, which is just property one in here. We, we took out the addresses, but you've got a, a bought for ninety five thousand, three hundred thousand equity, and your loan balance on here is zero, right? Yeah, he paid that one. Okay. Off. Um, so a property like this, where it's, it's a, it's a 2.5 cap rate. So a property that you would never buy today because it's just, you know, it's, it's very poor performing, but it's a great cash flowing property. Why would you not just sell that, take all the equity, go out there and put that, you know, take $350,000 of down payment to go out there and buy four single family rentals to get to the, the goal faster, higher on OI. I'm just curious, like why your mind. Yeah. So two, differently. two things on this property. Uh, I think that this one, uh, this is on, on East 52nd, this is in Montbello. So this property is rented for, I think now 1650 a month, the market rate significantly higher than that. So this is one that I'm just behind on. So actually it would be a lot easier for me to get a better rate on return to, uh, just give them a, either a really high increase or notice to non-renew and then rehab it and uh, go back and probably get, if it's rehab, maybe 22, 2400 bucks a month uh, okay. from the hip a little bit. So I could increase that return on investment significantly. But to your specific question about sell this property, maybe even go do an exchange and buy four more, that's kind of where the spreadsheet says you should do that every mm -hmm. time because you will uh, have four props. So now instead of having 380, maybe you have a million dollars in real estate. So it, if it goes up by 10% a year, which we don't count on forever, but it's been typical lately. Now you're gaining 100,000 a year instead of 38,000 uh, in this example. That's a great question. My biggest reason was to keep the debt uh, relatively limited. And I've had the ability to do that th through some low purchase prices. So let's say you did sell this property and go buy four. I've just bought two properties in the last couple of months. It's difficult out there, you know? So then do I have to go look to a different market? Um, you know, I know this house really well. It's probably a conservative approach and would likely, if I buy more properties, gets me to a higher cash flow, but it'll also take longer to when I pivot to uh, roll all the cash flow in to pay down the properties, that it would extend the timeline just that much further. But you, d you did mention you want to attempt to get to 20 properties eventually, right? Right. So that's still the goal. So you could still use this as a refinance. For sure. If you don't want to sell it you could refinance it and then you could use that cash too. Right. Now I've identified two on. properties in the portfolio that I'll probably sell next spring. Um, and this is going to sound crazy, but mostly just because the landscaping is so difficult on them. They're just mm -hmm. like, you know, the, it's like a sand uh, yard. And uh, wait, that's a bad thing. To have <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> but just an opportunity to get rid of some portfolio or some dogs in the portfolio. Right. And we use these times when real estate is really valuable and it's going up at a, at a good run to kind of sell some of those. And I will most definitely 1031 exchange out of those, but I don't know what I'll get 
into at this point. And maybe it's you sell one and buy two with heavy down payment or something like that. Um, but all in all, I want to make sure that when I get to 50, that I have the ability to have these properties free and clear. And my biggest concern in uh, ratcheting up the debt is that I have to ride that longer. Of course, that gives me an opportunity to potentially sell those when I get to that time and use the money to reduce that on others. Um, but that's what's great about this game, right? Is yeah. that you can literally skin this cat so many different ways. And uh, whether that's through more properties or more cash flow or lower debt or more debt or whatever it is, there's a lot of ways to be successful in this business. And this is like I said, I appreciate you saying that, Travis, because like, you know, you did a great job of saying, hey, the spreadsheet says to do this, but I'm not because of this, because you have your own investing parameters, your own, you know, risk tolerance and your overall portfolio LTV. And that's the thing every investor has to figure out for themselves. For sure. As you said, there's we can all get to the same destination. But if you plug in Google Maps, we're each gonna have three different routes to right. get there. Same thing with this property. So there's portfolio. So it's great to know what's best to do, but you have to like then take that and give it the context. Hey, what are your goals? What's the current marketing conditions? What's your risk tolerance? So what's all this other stuff going on? And it's great that you're able to articulate that because I feel like that's something a lot of times people aren't able to or they take it for granted. So I want to really highlight that for our listeners out there is to the way Travis is analyzing it and saying, you know what, this is what I should do in a spreadsheet, but here's what I'm doing and here's why. Sure. And you can... Yeah, it's, it's such a great point, Chris. And something I was thinking during that as well is that that's part of why we set up goals in the analysis, in the sessions that we run. So we set up this goal set to say, how much equity would you like to actually see? Now, we don't have your goals in this spreadsheet, Travis, because I just pulled your actuals. We didn't actually set up goals. Sure. You, were, you were already on your goal <laughs> path when we met. And so, you know, I set up your goals of like, how much do you want in NOI? How much do you want in cash flow? How much equity do you want? And then we have to kind of move the pieces around to try to meet those goals. And they don't always fit the traditional advice. They don't always tr fit what people may think. And then we start to shift things around to hit to hit where they want to be because your goal is $1,000 a, a week. And so how do we get to that 360, basically, you know, in, in there? Um, and I had a question for you too. Of all your properties you've had, minus the two you just recently acquired, have any of them had any like long extended periods of vacancy in the time you've held them? No, and I mean, it, yeah, I, and at I, all, yeah, and, right. and that's great. And I'll tell you why I'm asking that because you had mentioned, um, you know, maybe you want to look to another market for properties, which we see a lot here. People looking to Colorado Springs sure. and looking maybe up north and looking to other places outside of the metro, but. One thing that we've heard over and over in real estate investing in Denver is that we did not experience the same kind of attrition in this market during those bad years. And I get you were on the tail end, you were just on the recovery period, right. but we are continually seeing so much immigration, so many people moving here from different places. We've seen it during COVID. I think we're on the top 10 list of some publication of one of the top 10 places people are moving during COVID. And so, you know, that really just highlights that you as an investor over almost moving on to 11 years now have seen really consistent occupancy rates. And, and I really love that because it speaks to, you know, it's like firsthand experience speaking to what we say is, you know, Denver continues to be just a really robust, strong market for rentals. And we just see more and more evidence of how that's continuing. So yeah, I mean, I can great. think of off the top of my head, uh, a handful, maybe five properties that I own that have the same tenants that uh, moved in on day one. Now, it, maybe it's obvious because the rents aren't as high as they should be, right? Yeah. But uh, but it's it's wild when you move someone into a property, um, that one on 52nd we were just discussing, um, the same tenants have been in there since 2012, uh, the property I bought in 20, late 2010, same tenant the entire time. 
Um, which is great because turnovers cost money, you know, and when you when you go back and look at what this individual and or Section 8 or whoever has paid you over that time period, it is it is wild to think yeah. about the amount of money that you brought in from these properties. Yep, I, and they're I, paying I, your mortgage. Yeah, and then some, exactly. Yeah. So that's been great. Um, twenty twenty one. You want to talk a little bit about the two you just picked up? We yeah, kinda, I'm going to scroll. Or Chris, can I? Can we scroll over? Yep. I'll give you back the mouse. Thank you very much. So the two properties I just bought are. Uh, we'll have to do a, a kind of a little bit of of some assumptions, uh, kind of as we discussed. Um, so when we got into twenty twenty one, so I came out of a, a pretty sizable new construction project that that we sold in um, December. And the goal was, you know, same thing in a spreadsheet. We sat down and said, okay, here's going to be the proceeds from this project. What are we going to do with it? We're going to pay some properties off. We're going to do this, you know, uh, just these different things my wife and I work through. And so going into 2021, I said, okay, we're going to buy three properties this year. And, uh, you know, with about 200-ish thousand, maybe a little bit more to, to put toward that. And I was talking with Joe in detail and he's like, look, man, if you don't care about the cash flow, which you've said you don't, then why buy two? buy three with 15% down. I'm like, okay. So he got my wheels turning. I get a, a property under contract at 400,000 in Thornton, decent little deal, four bedroom, two bath, a big garage. And uh, the first time I've ever paid for a home inspection uh, we in 11 years. And uh, I'm thinking, well, if we're paying this much for a house, maybe we should get a home inspection. So the home inspector is walking through the house and he kind of uh, questions my, did you smell something on the way in? And they're kind of talking about it. He said, oh, maybe it was meth or something. I, I thought, oh, that's kind of mm. weird. So we, we got home, we slept on it. And we said, let's just get a meth test. Big deal, right? Sure enough, that thing was hot, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I think the it's, it's actually a survey. So if it's 0 0.05 or higher, uh, then it's it's considered hot. The report came in at like, the first test was at like 400 and the second one was like in the 200s. Wow. Yeah, so dodged wow. a huge bullet on that. Mm. And that was at the time where I was like, okay, we're gonna buy this property. We're probably not gonna cash flow, especially with 15% down, but this is going to feed the overall picture of getting into 20 properties, let the rest of the property hedge, right? In some ways it's like dollar cost averaging, right? We're, I'm still putting money in the stock market today in uh, my retirement account at the all time high. Similar with real estate, right? You're gonna to continue to buy properties in order to hit your goal. You can't just stop and say, well, I'm gonna wait till later. So with the idea of, okay, I don't know if we're gonna actually make any money on this, but we're gonna buy it. We, uh, I was getting a little discouraged and I met with, oh, I met someone who was doing Airbnbs and I thought, wow, this is interesting. But in my initial conversation, I said, look, I'm not going to be a good host. If the cleaners don't show up, somebody will have a really bad stay. I just want to be clear. I'm not driving across town to clean this. And if I have the wrong attitude, just tell me now and we'll stop the conversation. And she said, no, let me show you how to do this a little bit more automated. Let me show you how to put the right systems in place. So we bought two houses uh, that we'll use for Airbnb. One of them we launched uh, just a couple weeks ago. And so, so with some broad assumptions, we can get into the numbers, but that we would net $2,000 a month over the mortgage uh, in, as a return from these. And so the way I've always done things is, well, why buy one to make 24,000 if we could buy two and make you know almost 50,000 a year, let's go for it. So we bought two, we just launched the first one, and it is incredible to me what people will pay to stay in these properties. Yep. Um, you know, this is kind of uh, in, in the Northwest uh, side of Denver uh, or the Metro. and we're getting $400 a night in July. So we launched this uh, mid-April and in the next uh, uh, 10 or 12 weeks, we've got a, over $11,000 in bookings on this Airbnb. And so this is brand new to us, yep. right? So the idea was, uh, that's kind of where the numbers come in on this, is the idea is that we would net $2,000 a month. So we'd need to make about 5,500, 6,000 in gross, minus the fees and the consumables and the cleanings and that type of stuff, we should be able to net $2,000 a month uh, per property 
where it might have been broke, e- we might have broke even otherwise yeah. on a traditional rental. And and you were able to systematize the process, so you're able to automate. Kind of, you have everything turnkey now. You have it ready to turn over when somebody leaves, and that's not something you have to manage. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. the agreement uh, with my wife and I was that I would handle the vendors and she would handle the guests. So she owns um, a business, a couple of franchise locations. So she works from home. And the idea was, well, could you manage the guests if I manage the the vendors? You know, and the crazy me, I always go sign us up for something and come home and say, good news, right? <laughs> we're going to do Airbnb. She's like, we're going to do what? <laughs> like, and and I had always been so resistant to it because it seems so management intensive. But with the right tools, you can make it um and we're still early on so you know ask me in six months or a year from right now. no i don't mean, but it's a great starting point and i just want to point out that you know you paid around four hundred and ninety thousand for each of these properties right right which is a great price for somewhere that can pull in six thousand sure. dollars a month on average as just you know kind of what you're estimating sure. maybe five thousand a month but even if you didn't get to five thousand a month and you were at four thousand a month or maybe even three you're at least going to get close to break even most months and then making a profit other months. So right. if you don't hit your 24,000 a year, it still looks like it has a lot of room for cushion for those bad months should they happen. So, I mean, those are, in my opinion, in this market in Denver to buy two of those in 2021, find them, get them under contract. That, that's a huge win. Yeah. Yeah. So would you factor in the, you know, Airbnb, Airbnb income is obviously higher than long-term rental sure. income and more management intensive with your a thousand dollar a day paid off goal would you factor in the higher air maybe income in towards that towards that a thousand dollar a day goal for like your retirement purposes? No, uh, everything for the long term is based on that, which is light two thousand dollars a month on twenty properties uh, for a couple reasons. One, regulation could change the game right overnight, right? If if these areas decide that they're going to be regulated, and at that point in time, the properties would do okay with long term rentals. I wouldn't have bought them as a long term rental uh, if that was the sole purpose, but. You know, if it takes two years from now and rents continue to climb, it would probably do better. Or I could sell it at that time, assuming the market continues to perform the way it does. Uh, cash out, 1031 exchange, go do something different. But I think that, and I bought these properties in March. I closed in March and April. So that was kind of just before things got really crazy. Um, and one of them, uh, we can talk a bit about this too. We, we offered $70,000 over. Um, so the they'll work in the long term but in the short term we're going to squeeze as much money as we can on this uh, short-term rental and as long as it'll work we'll do it and if at some point we decide we just absolutely dislike it or uh there's regulation then we'll just move on okay yeah and and i like that plan b a lot because because i think that way as well so um we have two different kind of vrbo airbnb properties and i look at the plan b like could i sell this as a single family home to a family is it in a neighborhood where there's a family also, could I potentially rent it just to a long-term renter? Like what would happen if regulation did change? And so, I mean, it's, it's great to have purchased those thinking about that, right? With, sure. that, with that in mind. So a while back, you mentioned this is a great time to sell, you know, your dog properties. So I want to ask you about that because I mean, you've been in the business now for a solid decade, you know, buying properties, helping people put together deals on the hard money side. And I talked to, you know, a couple clients a month, they, you know, hey, they bought their first property of a property. And it's just, it's a dog of a property. It's just, it's been horrible or they hate it or whatever reason. What is your recommendation in general to investors out there in market conditions like this? What do you do with those dog properties? Yeah. And I, I suppose everybody would, would, um, describe a dog differently. Um, 
My goal when I, so a while back, I did a reverse 1031 exchange and sold at that time what was the dog in my portfolio and bought two townhomes. Can uh, I ask you why that was your dog in your portfolio? Yeah. So that property was in Montbello, uh, got a good price on it. It had good rent for the numbers. Um, the challenge was that it was a two bedroom, two bath, two car garage. It was basically a glorified apartment on a single family lot, right? So it was difficult from a value standpoint to capture the rent I needed to justify owning it because yep. it was only two bedrooms where everything thing in the area is four bedrooms. Um, and so that property, I thought, well, gosh, you know, I don't know how long I want to own this. So we sold it. And then I used that as in a reverse exchange to buy two townhomes. So kind of back to your question about the dog properties, uh, keeping in mind, everybody describes the dog differently. You have to decide what are you going to do with the money? So often we say, oh, this property's going to give me a hard time. And your dog property may, you, this way you need spreadsheets like this, because your dog property in your mind is the one you take the most calls on, but it may not, may, you may have another property where you never hear from the tenant, but it's not very profitable. Um, or your dog property might be the one that's on a busy street or has that uh, terrible lot or whatever it is. I do think you should sell those properties if they're causing you trouble, you don't want to own it any longer, but what are you going to do with the money? So that's where you may look at doing an exchange. You may look at paying the taxes on it, depending on your income situation. I mean, we're at a point now where I, I would never sell a property just because by the time you pay all of the taxes along the ways, you'd be better off owning the property or doing an exchange. And if you've had trouble, depending on where your trouble is, keeping tenants, maintenance, whatever it is, trade into something that's not going to give you that problem. So when I sold that single family to buy townhomes, I'm like, oh, this is beautiful. No yards, no exterior maintenance, right? Like the the, tra uh, the trash is taken care of. It's just so much easier to manage. Of course, you pay an HOA that captures some of that, but the purchase prices we got were, were really good. Um, and it gives us an opportunity to continue to collect cash flow. So if you do it right, I think you would do uh, the same or better, but even if you did a little worse on a monthly basis, if it's less of a headache for you and a, maybe even a newer property, I think you'd do better to sell the properties. So for people out there in a situation, sounds like step one is really define what a what a dog property means to every individual. Sure. And then really take a look at the numbers and give some, take the emotion out of there, but really put some context to it and weigh like, hey, here are the numbers and here's the headache, here's the downside, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And then maybe the next step from there is to identify what you're going to do with that. Because in this market mm -hmm. in Denver, it's so difficult to find a deal. But let's remember if you're doing an exchange on a property you bought 10 years ago, you captured so much appreciation that you haven't been able to do anything with. Keep that in the back of your mind and go buy a deal. It doesn't make uh, as much sense maybe from a cash flow standpoint or the, what you're paying for it. But if it's going to take some headache away and now you've traded so much equity into it or over multiple properties and it's getting you towards your goal, then you should definitely do that. Uh, but but don't uh, get excited to sell it and then go try to find something and then only buy the next property because you don't want to pay the taxes on the on the previous sale. So let's talk about the reverse 1031 because you know for listeners who aren't familiar with 1031 exchanges, it's a way to really basically defer capital gains, uh, and they come with some stipulations that you know that property you sold in Montbello, Travis. The day it closes, you have 45 days to identify your new properties, property or properties, and then you know, 180 days from that closing to close on those properties. So right. there, are, there are timelines and so many things along the way can blow it up. And us being in a very tight seller's market make 1031s more stressful now. A reverse 1031 helps mitigate uh, a lot of those timelines because you basically buy your replacement property first, then sell your existing or relinquished property. So walk us through what you did and how you made it all work because there, there's higher fees and there's some definitely some more moving parts. Yeah, so a lot of moving parts, uh, and this is a this is fun because I learned this strategy at one of our success summits. I'm sitting in there listening to Tracy Wilson and he's talking about reverse exchanges, and I'm you know 
taking notes like crazy. <laughs> I've never even heard of this before. And I thought, gosh, I have a property I'd like to sell. And so the way, the way I was able to do it was I identified the property I wanted to sell. Now you mentioned they're more expensive. So there's a couple of ways you can do a reverse exchange. If you've got a bunch of money, you can go out and just buy the other property for cash as long as um, your uh, intermediary is included so that you title it correctly. Um, and then you could just sell the other one and it's relatively inexpensive. But the way that I wanted to do it was was pretty specific in that I actually title, change the title in the relinquished property to the 1031 intermediary. So now they're on title. The reason you need to do that is because you're gonna buy your replacement properties in the name of the entity that you had it in previously. And so um, it's, it's kind of in the weeds, and but so that's your LLC or that's whatever. That's correct, right? okay. yeah. Or your personal name if you, uh, if you are holding your properties that way. So now I need to go buy properties in my LLC that I've been running my business in. So what I did was I used a combination of things, actually. I had a line of credit available that I used that on one of them. Uh, so the first one I, I bought, I used uh, Pine Financial Group. It was a good deal. I was able to put a good amount down because I knew I was gonna have this money coming from the uh, 1031 exchange. So I used my line of credit to put the money down, made some repairs to it, and then did a, re did a refinance on it. The second property was actually in good shape. It was right off the MLS. So it was one of those like, hey, we'll close next week type of deals. And um, I actually worked with uh, First Bank on the purchase using, again, the line of credit as a down payment on that. And then uh, when I sold the, the relinquished property, then we were able to roll the funds. So what I did, we did was went out and bought two properties, identified and bought two properties. After I already had those purchased, then I actually got the tenants out of the existing property, cleaned it up, and went on the market to sell it. The biggest benefit in the reverse exchange is the timing, as you mentioned. So where traditionally you'd have 45 days to identify and six months to close on the reverse exchange, you have six months to sell the relinquished property from the time you purchased the first replacement property. So you have significantly more time. So no 45 day window then just have to Correct. just have to sell within that six month period. And do you remember, I think you mentioned something about a fee, right? Like a $4,000 fee yeah, so and the, how you're able to recoup that. Yeah, so the yeah. fee is hefty on the, re a, a traditional exchange is probably still under a thousand bucks, a forward exchange. A uh, reverse exchange, on the specific way I wanted to do it, where we title the relinquished properties to the intermediary was $4,000. So it's a lot of dough, right? It's a big fee. But at one point I was collecting rent on three properties. So it was pretty easy to offset yeah, that cost. So great, because right. that six month period you had. Exactly, right. exactly. And so it makes it, uh, it's more, it's complicated and it's more expensive, but it it just paid dividends in this scenario. I mean, it, it we did so well on the resale of that uh, relinquished property and the replacement properties did done really well. Yeah, and you know, it's great because we have some clients that are looking into 1031s, um, a couple we're working with right now, and we have, absolutely recommended the reverse because it's not just the fee that, you know, while it seems hefty and you're, you're not just, you were able to recover yours, but you also are saving yourself all the stress and headache of that 45 day, 180 day period that is so tight in this market. And so the ability to do this and actually take that pressure off, I think for decision-making purposes and to keep your head on straight, you know, during the whole process is just, it's invaluable. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. When you get to a certain point in your career, um, money solves all problems, right? <laughs> and so the difference of a $3,000 fee is peanuts compared to, even if it's just the stress, you know, I've got three young kids. I'm not out looking at properties on Saturday morning, you know, we're going to soccer and swim class. So, um, the ability to do things kind of at your own pace is, is definitely so valuable, especially over that $3,000. Totally, I hear you. So uh, this is something, because I know you, you've got a very unique perspective, both being an investor and also a very active lender as well. For people, you know, a lot of people are like the 1031s, but they have run into issues where they don't have the funds to go buy their replacement property first. 
Do you have any ideas or recommendations for financing options or does Pine offer like financing options so people can basically get a bridge loan or a loan to help them buy or buy that first property then sell the other property? Sure. So it's not like in our, uh, at Pine Financial, it's not like in our, uh, you know, on our list of loans that we offer, but we take a common sense approach to everything. So if you had a property that you had a bunch of equity in and then uh, you wanted to buy another one, we would certainly look at the ability to bridge that for you. You could tie up the equity in the first property uh, and then use that more or less to reduce the loan balance um, when you sell that property on the second property. So you could certainly do it that way. Um, it's a di That's the other thing about the reverse that can be challenging. Um, another thing you could do is get a line of credit on your relinquished property first, if it's a high equity position, and then use that money to uh, use as a downstroke on the new property. Um, you will want to be a little conscious in how you communicate that because most banks may not want to do a line of credit if it's not going to be out for a long time. Um, so you definitely would want to work through that. Um, so there's you could you could accomplish it through private or hard money, a line of credit, or if you were pretty liquid, you could I guess you could handle it that way. So there's some different options. Um, and you've really just got to figure them all out, right? Because this business revolves around financing and understanding financing is what really helps people be successful. Yep. Is the most underappreciated step in every purchase 100%. is the financing. And so, I, mean, it's, I mean, it's paperwork, it's a headache, but it is so underappreciated sure. as financing. So I'm going to jump around some other questions here. Um, looking back at your portfolio here, Travis, you bought two new properties in 2021 so far but you also pay down a couple of properties as well, right? Correct. So how do you decide which properties to pay down? Like, how do you how do you look at the chessboard and decide to pay off these two while you're buying these two, these two new properties? Yeah, I wish I could tell you there was like some really methodical process in, in identifying these properties. Um, it really came down to, I had a handful of properties that are really low loan, ba loan balance. And my wife, she owns her own business and she we're all 50-50 in all the rental properties. So she has a good income from that but she's a little unsure on how long she might run that business. And so the idea was, let's pay off the ones that are in her name to drastically reduce the DTI so that mm. we can continue to buy properties in her name. If at some point she decides that they don't wanna operate this business anymore, they wanna sell it, uh, she could be without income, right? Or, or as much income as she has today. So the goal now is anything we buy to finance it in her name, if we're going conventional, the bank typically requires us both to sign so that we can use as much of her, you know, 10 property max as possible. And then when the time comes where we hit that or she does something different, then we would kind of transition over to uh, to my 10 properties, if you will, looking at conventional only. I do have a handful of bank loans and banks do a great job too, but the best long-term low rate financing you can get is still Fannie and Freddie. Uh, so we try to do that as much as possible. I do have a handful of 15-year loans uh, from First Bank uh, that worked really well because they were non-warrantable condos at the, or townhomes at the time. Uh, the other thing was, is both properties were with the lo same loan servicer. And so it was like, if we're going to knock this one off, let's just be done with them. Right. And, and move on to something else. Uh, mm -hmm. And so it, it's, that's, what's a little challenging about my goal of getting to the 20 properties is that I have to both pay them off and continue to purchase, which kind of pulls you in two separate ways. Yeah. Uh, but what's wild is you pay off a property and, and, you know, the cash flow on day one on those increases 750 bucks a month. Now that's not all, uh, wasn't all interest, but you do have to look at the money you're getting from principal pay down because now that's in your pocket instead of paid down on your loan. And then of course you need to prepare for your escrows, taxes and insurance. Yeah. That's very insightful. It is. And um, and one thing is, so clients ask us or have asked me in, in a session. So uh, we, we suddenly have X amount of dollars, that's called $250,000. And we want to start paying down properties. You know, how would you approach this? And so- my general response is I like to pay down newer debt versus older debt first because your newer debt, you're paying a lot more interest right now than you are principal, 
Whereas older debt, if you've had a place for five or 10 years, you're in a place where you may be paying, potentially depending on the note size, you may be paying more principal than interest. Hmm. And so that's one thing that, you know, I've had the conversation about. The second is spreading it over multiple properties based on what the cash flow comes out to look like right at the end, if that's the goal. And like we said earlier, you know, what the spreadsheet tells you or what the traditional advice is doesn't always fit people's life circumstances. So what is that goal? Is it more cash flow? Is it getting rid of high interest payments? Because oftentimes people think real estate debt is good debt and it is, it's asset backed debt. So, you know, you have something to back up that debt as opposed to credit card debt or a depreciating asset like a car. So I'm just curious on your take, if it wasn't for your wife's circumstance, if you were just basically to be, you know, to look at your portfolio and say, I have half a million dollars right now, I'm going to, what what would you do if you were going to throw it at this spreadsheet? Yeah. So I, one thing I would encourage people not to do is to spread it across multiple properties, mm-hmm. especially in a case where you had 250 or 500, depending on your total debt size, because your payment stays the same. Unless you make a significant pay down, you can recast your mortgage. So what some people aren't familiar with is, let's say you had a $200,000 loan and you threw $100,000 at it. Now you've got a $100,000 loan balance. You can call the uh, servicer and do a recast. And basically what that does is take that 100,000 and spreads it over the term of the loan. That's how you'll save money in your monthly pay. Um, if your goal is really to pay them down over time, you may not do that so because it would really accelerate your principal pay down by making a big payment like that. But I would try to pay off a full property if possible because it will help with the DTI standpoint. Um, and when we look at debt, it's funny to think about paying off high rate debt. I've got mortgages I think are still five and a half, maybe five, seven, five, but the loan balances are so small, you know, sixty, seventy thousand dollars The fixed fees and refinance almost, they don't make sense to do it, yep. even if you could drop two points in rate, yep. unless you're gonna take cash out and do something different with it. So I would uh, try to focus on a property you could pay off completely. But of course, before you were gonna pay off a property, you need to identify what your long-term goal is. And if it's to buy three more rentals, you'd be better to buy them now than two years from now, right? So it's another thing you have to identify as T. Harv Eker, right? Uh, don't wait to buy real estate, buy real, real estate and wait. And we've seen that just in this year in this market, right? At the rate that properties are going up. So if you were gonna say buy another property next year, do it now instead of paying them down. If you've gotten to a point where you say, okay, we're in a good place, we hit our, our 100,000 a year or whatever the goal might be, or we're unsure what the future brings and we're gonna pay them down, I would try to do full pay downs Newer debt or older debt, I totally respect the idea there of you're getting more principal pay down as you get through the amortization schedule. Um, higher rates, all the rates are so low right now that maybe that doesn't matter as much. So you might either go for the lowest balance or the highest rate, probably. Yeah, that's yeah. great. No, I appreciate it. And the recast is a great tip. Sure. That's, that's a great suggestion. Have you actually recast loans? I haven't uh, okay. because I haven't made heavy principal payments uh, I, other than just paying them off completely. Uh, but I've certainly considered it uh, on that that triplex that I have. Uh, I had I actually put a significant payment on it to save on the PMI because from a cash on cash standpoint, it was actually really strong to just make the payment down. Um, so there's just some different ways. And, you know, there's so much math involved in this business. You, yeah. you can't, almost can't make a bad decision, but you should make the best decision, right? Yeah. And if that means increasing cash flow uh, via recast or a full pay down or something like that, then you should certainly uh, decide what's going to work best yeah. for you. Yep. So, oh, so you're at basically with these two new Airbnbs, assuming they perform out like you're expecting them to, you're basically about 240000 NOI, which is two thirds of that goal of, 360, which is $30,000 a day or $30,000 a month, $1,000 a day. So for this last third of your portfolio, what's the broad strategy getting there as you're buying properties and you're paying them off? Like, what do you prioritize? And and what's the last, you know, part of the marathon for you? Yeah. So the great question and something I think about a lot. I mean, I've, 
I've wrote it down. I've entered spreadsheets. I've, in fact, I wasn't going to buy anything that was old. I was only going to buy um, properties that were built in the 2000s and newer or whatever it is so that the maintenance would be easier and they'd be easier to manage and that type of stuff. But when I shifted to the Airbnb strictly for the, to capture as much cash flow as possible, I was buying houses that were built in the 60s and 70s, just the fact of the way it is, right? So going forward, uh, I think that we'll continue to probably see, here's the benefit of, of what we've done so far is that we don't have to race now, right? I mean, we are kind of cruising in the way that if we can buy one property a year or even one every other year for the rest of the term and use the cash flow that's coming in to pay it down or use it as a downstroke, uh, we'll still get there. So the priority, how to prioritize it. We're done this year. I can tell you that. And, and here's why. The Airbnb, it's it's been really fun and, and we've had, a, it was exciting getting it launched and all of that, but it's a lot of work. I mean, traditionally I bought a property, put a for rent sign in the yard, filled it, got the cash flow and moved on. And you self-managed too. Uh, all except for my three unit. Yeah. And I'm actually moving towards management. We can talk a little bit about okay. that too. Um, but the, on the Airbnb, it was like, let's squeeze as much as we can. But here I find myself renting a Home Depot truck to go pick up this couch because it's a really good deal, you know, and it is not the best use of my time, but it's kind of exciting. And anytime something's kind of fun, it, you, you get that focus. And now I'm shopping Facebook Marketplace and there's a button where you can see how much they have it delivered from Dolly, right? And I'm like, yeah, all day long because it's going to cost me it. Oh, they have that feature that, now? Yeah, it's wild. So you find a couch in Broomfield. Okay, we'll put in your zip code and it'll automatically integrate uh, Dolly. Dolly's an app that you can use to... Um, basically get stuff moved. And I used it a couple years ago. Uh, we bought something. My wife loves Craigslist. I mean, she's, she's always finding a deal. So that part's exciting, but you know, but then what does that mean? Travis has got to go get the U-Haul and, you know, do this and that, deliver it, get my car. Um, so Dolly now, and it, most moves, um, across the Metro is about a hundred bucks, you know, and, and they, and then you can tip them. And so, uh, I've started moving toward that. And so it's like, you know, although sometimes I got a hundred bucks to move this thing, you know what? I don't have a truck, <laughs> you know, I don't want to bug my friend for a truck. And uh, now I don't have to go rent it. Um, so the the Airbnbs they were intensive to get set up, and so we'll we'll get these. Uh, the one is launched. The second one we hope to have launched soon, and we'll operate those this year, and then probably focus on paying off maybe one or two more properties by the end of the year, uh, just to continue to to keep it all moving forward. Going forward over the next handful of years, what we buy. I, again, I thought my focus was going to be on newer stuff. I was even looking at some new construction stuff out near the airport. It's crazy what the prices um, still were. Now, this is a couple months ago before apparently there's no two by fours left that aren't $12 each. So the prices on that stuff's going to continue to go up, but it's wild what you can still see. And historically, cities grow toward the airport. They move the airport way out there. And at the time seems so far away. And even when I bought those first properties in First Creek, it was like, wow, this is way out here. I just drove out there the other day. I don't visit my properties often, but I, I went out to one and I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't even recognize it. Every bare field's got uh, earth movers yep. in it. They're building like crazy. And the prices are still relatively affordable, even for uh, rental properties. And what a lot of people may not understand is, you know, although you may not want to live in Green Valley Ranch, uh, the rents are still strong out there, especially if you want to go Section 8. And I've got a strong, a uh, good portion of portfolio at Section 8. And so you could still capture good cash flows out there. I know a lot of what you guys are doing with some of your clients on the house hacking is renting by the room, which is super intriguing to me. You know, at, at my old age and three kids, no way. But uh, what a wild way to get going, something we hadn't considered previously. Yeah, the cash flow in the room by rooms are, are phenomenal, yeah. but it's a, it's a lot more work. And it's usually for the more of the single younger people sure. that are willing to do that. So as we um, kind of wrap up this interview, Travis, I want to get your perspective um, you know, you're you're 11 years into a great career, both as an investor, as a hard money lender. You talk to clients all day long. You're buying your properties, still you're optimizing your portfolio. 
And, you know, people say, is this a good time to buy? I feel like I've, I've missed the wave on Denver real estate. I feel like I've missed the wave in, in real estate investing in general. What would be your advice either to a new person or if there was the 25-year-old Travis today and you had the fortune to give yourself advice today for starting out, what advice would you give people in terms of like what to do tactically and just some good advice on some context for the market and big picture? Sure. So I... I, the the short answer is the only property I've ever regretted was the ones I didn't buy. Uh, you know, there's some some small misses in the past, right? Ten years ago, oh, I can't. I don't want to put that much down on this property, and then and then look what happened. Let me give you. Do just, those still haunt you? Uh, I wouldn't say haunt, but uh, buggy you know, maybe yeah, buggy a little yeah, bit because there were there was two houses on the same street I passed on because I had to put down. I don't know, remember what it was at the time, fifteen thousand each or something using the burst strategy versus uh, today. Those properties are you know six x that price. Uh, let me give you a little background on on what I've done over the last 10 years to kind of give an idea of, of exactly what my mindset was. So I started buying uh, in 2010, started getting heavy, 11, 12, up into 13. 13, I bought this property uh, in Southwest Denver and the appraisal came back at 180 and I couldn't believe it. I, there's no way this 900 square foot house is worth 180,000. There's no way this can continue. <laughs> this is nuts. This is bananas. So I actually pivoted at that point in 2013 and started doing uh, new construction townhomes. So I bought my first uh, lot in 13, delivered the units in 15. Uh, after the proceeds from that, I used that to buy another lot in uh, West Colfax. I built eight units there, did really well on that, and then parlayed that into the project that I mentioned previously that I sold this past December. So I actually kind of shifted focus and started doing new construction because the payouts were so big. But along the way, I would still just buy a property here or there. And what, I, what I've what i kind of regret is I thoroughly enjoyed the new construction and we did really well at it. It was a great way to get big chunks of money in relatively short periods of time. But what I did miss was that I, I slowed my rental purchase uh, purchasing just a little bit. So from 13 to 15, I think I might've only bought one property. And then I started buying a few more. And I did the reverse exchange and that. I wish I'd have been a tad bit more consistent. So coming back to, is the market overpriced? Can somebody be successful today? There's so many ways you can be creative now. You, we, we talked about the rent by the room. I mean, what a phenomenal way. And I, I enjoy listening to your podcast with what I'm going to call these relatively young people who are buying these houses and renting the room. And I'm just like, oh my God, I can't believe people are doing this, you know, but it works. Right. And, and when you look at the numbers and that's one of the things that makes real estate investors uh, successful, especially in, in rental property is the ability to, to delay grat uh, gratitude, right. Or um, delay gratification, delay gratification. Excuse me. So the ability to do that changes everything because you'll meet your friends who just bought the super sick townhome downtown and they'll say, I'm thinking about buying a rental property, but we just, you know, put $125,000 down on this and we're a little tight versus the person who bought that house in Aurora, who is renting it room by room and just really capturing these goals and knowing that in the words of Dave Ramsey, live like no one else. So later you can live and, and give in his way like no one else. So it's really uh, interesting. So I think that's cool. I think the the buy uh, maybe a, a ranch and Airbnb the basement uh, is really interesting right now to, to be able to capture some of that. So although the times are different, the strategies are different. Yeah, and, and I like that a lot, Travis, that creativity piece, because for example, our property managers that work with, with this group and with us as investors, 
they saw such an attrition in downtown Denver that came in in a huge wave and rents were dropping and people were dropping and vacancies were and people were selling. And people who grabbed those during this wave, right, are, are going to be happy in the long run as well. And then there are these opportunities in the affordable housing space. I sure. mean, right now, policy, right? You talk about our, our Airbnb is going to go away in a certain place, right? Policies are changing and affordable housing is so needed. And when you mentioned Section 8, or you go into a pocket where there's just really, really good affordable rentals, you know, that people can afford to buy and then renters can afford to live in. That's another great creative solution in this marketplace. And so there are some really neat ways to sort of get around this um, at this time. So I, I hear you. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, just listening to some of the stuff you guys are, are doing and preaching and teaching for that matter is uh, it's really powerful. It's just you know, most people are going to buy one to what, maybe five houses in their lifetime if they move quite a bit, you know, versus, you know, it's like not even, I don't want to say it's not exciting to buy houses now, but it's so commonplace. Um, and, you know, it's kind of funny when you talk to people, whether it's a cocktail party or whatever. So what do you do? Oh, you have a rental property? Well, you have 15. Like, it's like, it's like no big deal because we've done it. Right. And so for people who are getting started, like, I love going back to the data. What is it? 6% per year on average for the last 50 years in Denver, you know, for appreciation, yes, yeah. for appreciation, including the downturn. So if you could live in a property for two years and you, you can get up 12%, it's going to give you the ability to do that refinance or potentially move to the next property. And you just keep doing that. And it's what I call crock pot cooking, right? I mean, it's slow and low. <laughs> it is not sexy, but damn, you get rich. You know what I mean? Dude, that's a great <laughs> metaphor. Totally. So I got three questions left for you, Travis. Are you still doing the burst strategy? Because I get this question like daily almost. Maybe not quite that much, but the burst strategy. So I'm not, uh, and it's probably because I'm lazy. So is there opportunities to still do the burst strategy? Absolutely. But what would it take though for someone to successfully do a burr in today's market versus eight years ago when you were doing them? Like, how's that changed? Yeah. Burst sounds good on paper, but for reality sure. is it's tough right now. Yeah. So I think that when you focus on the burst strategy, the whole idea is no money down, right? But really it's no or low money down. And low is uh, is relative in, in today's market because you could go buy a property with 25% down, which is a lot of money down, or you could potentially do a burst strategy and say you could shake it down to 6% down. That'd be a pretty good, actually, that'd be a really good deal. Today, I would love right? to do that right now. Right. So are people still doing it? It, it can be done, but my advice would be not, if you want to wait for the perfect burst strategy, you might do one every two years, right? And you better be hustling, knocking on doors, off-market deals, that type of stuff. Or, and I actually heard you refer to this uh, one time, one of the podcasts about how investors are sometimes buying uh, flipped properties because everything's done. And I could buy a flipped property and put 15% down on that, of course, on that purchase price versus digging, trying to find something, buying it, rehabbing it. And then I was running the numbers on wholesale deals left and right. And all I could find was by the time I bought it and did the work to it, I did get a equity bump, maybe somewhere between five to 12%, which for some people they would kill for that. But at this point in my life, I can't manage rehabs and, and all that. So I prefer just to go buy it. You know, I look on the MLS or whatever it is, and I'll just go buy the house rather than going through the rehab process. That is a still a fantastic way for people to buy real estate to force that appreciation. But if you were gonna if you're gonna hold out for that, I don't know how many deals you're gonna get done. Okay. Second question. You mentioned this is off the cuff. Uh, the investor success summit. This is an event that you, Pine Financial and your castle have been hosting for, I mean, years, yeah. as long as I know. Um did not happen last year because of the pandemic. Normally happens now October-ish time frame. Yeah. 
Are you <laughs> planning on doing? I'm putting <laughs> on the spot here, now. man. The hot seat. You know what? Two weeks ago, probably would have said no. I had lunch yesterday with a couple people who are who are involved, and and the feelings were mixed. I'm ready for it, uh, and I think the people are too ready to get back out. So. My task was to go reach out to the venue and say, hey, if, if we want, how many people can we have? Does it need to be capped at 200? Can we go to 400? What will that look like? Based on all the things I'm seeing coming out of the governor's office, I mean, under a certain amount, I just saw something last night on the news. It seems like it's it's plausible so long as the event space is okay with it. So I'm hopeful that we have the opportunity to host a success summit this fall. Great. Let's talk more about that because I agree. I think, I mean, I'm very eager and I think people are too. And as you know, we, we just scheduled our, our like first live in-person networking right. at the book launch. And we've gotten a lot of RSVPs already as of like in less than 24 hours. And I mean, people are hungry for, and oh my gosh. They're ready so, to get out, get, man. Get rid of Zoom calls. <laughs> that no cocktail doubt. party you mentioned, it's been a while. Uh, yeah, right, people right. Into one of those, yeah. So Travis, what's the best way for people to get a hold of you, whether they want to pick your brain or, you know, work with work with you on the lending side? Like, how can people reach out to you? Sure. So um, you can definitely call me. It's a little bit more challenging that way. It's, it's at 303-835-4445. That's the office line. I'll also give my email. It's Travis, T-R-A-V-I-S at pine, like the tree, financialgroup.com. And uh, I'm happy to help. So if somebody needs a loan, of course, I'd love to work with you. Uh, if somebody's growing their rental portfolio, portfolio. Um, if you've got a couple of properties under your belt, you're having trouble getting the next one or you're brand new, I'll have those conversations. I'll just, you know, preface that let's not be a time suck for each other. You know, I, you know, that's what your, uh, what your agents get paid for here, <laughs> but, uh, what is that part? Out? Yeah. I, I, I like helping people. I, I mean, I, you know, if it wasn't for people like Charles Roberts, as an example, who, um, who I had the opportunity to meet a long time ago, I don't know that I'm where I am today, right? And even working with Kevin, you know, the founder of Pine Financial, one of the benefits of going to work with him 12 years ago now was that I was going to be sitting next to a successful real estate investor all day, right? I left my plumbing job making a uh, plumbing wholesale vendor $40,000 a year um, so that I could go take a chance on a commission income and and learn about real estate. And at that time, I had so little to lose, right? I could go find another job doing that. No big deal. Um, but I had this opportunity to to learn. And if it wasn't for the people who helped me along the way, I, I wouldn't be where I am. So I'd like nothing more than to see more people be successful in this business. And it's so fun and it's exciting. And when people are are really passionate about buying rental properties and collecting cash flow and doing the nomad or rent by the room, Airbnb, whatever it is to squeeze a couple more dollars out of a piece of real estate, that is so exciting. And uh, one thing I like to to share with people that sometimes in presentations is if you think about your parents' retirement, or even your grandparents' retirement. If they owned one property free and clear, how much different would their life have been? And what if they owned two or three free and clear? How much different would their retirement of their life been? And of course, maybe eventually your inheritance. Um, so it's it's exciting to me because you can really change your family tree through real estate investing. And it, you don't have to be a genius to do it. You can literally buy new construction or homes that you're going to live in, rent the room or whatever it is, and make some sacrifices now and and just crush later. And that's exciting to me. Yeah. Like Nike, just do it. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's yeah, right. Just get it going. Travis, this is this has been great. So all your contact details will be in the show notes. And I will iterate what you said. If you guys do reach out to Travis, be respectful of time. I know how busy uh, he is. So you know, if you come reach out to him, he's happy to talk to you, but be prepared for sure. Have questions and definitely take some notes on the podcast if you're prepared for him. 
And also, if you guys have questions on what to do with your portfolio, reach out to us or talk with Chelsea. Um, hey, I might sell this property. We can help you analyze. Should you sell it, keep it, fix it up, find that sweet spot, and then put it in context with the portfolio as well. We're trying to do a better job of getting all this data, yep. plugging the spreadsheet, and we know what the spreadsheet often says, but then giving the the consultative advice yes. say great let's play some scenarios and talk about your goals your your family situation mm -hmm. oh who's on what loans oh we need to strategize this like travis and his wife are talking about with with their properties right. so please reach out we love doing it so travis thank you chelsea thank you this has been great thanks chris thank you